Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Pamela Q. Fernandez. Pamela is an author, doctor, and medical writer, as well as the host of the Christian Circle podcast. Her novels are in the romance and women's fiction genres, and she has also published uh, at least one nonfiction book, Ten Reminders for the Single Christian Woman. You can follow Pamela on Twitter at Pamela Q. Ferns, and check out her website at PamelaQFernandez.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Pamela's background and career, uh, her professional interests and in her writing, and a bit about the way she's managing her career as an author. So thank you, Pamela, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Well, thank you, Lynn, for inviting me. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, I believe you're originally from Kuwait, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up and how you eventually, uh, well, became a doctor and interested in writing. Okay, so I'm a mix of a lot of things. So basically, I'm Indian. My grandparents are Portuguese, so we're half Indian, half Portuguese. But I was born and raised in Kuwait. And then for college, I went to the Philippines to study medicine. And then I traveled back to India, to the States, to Oman, to different countries to study, to practice, to learn. And now I'm in Brooklyn, New York, um, trying to get into residency training. So that's me. And you're the first person I've interviewed for the podcast who's uh, from Kuwait. Um, I was just wondering <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about what life is like growing up there. Oh, it's, it's actually um, very Islamic. So it's a country in the Middle East and you hear like the mosque prayers five times a day. You literally hear it because at every 20 meters there is a mosque. And so you grow up um, entirely with this this culture where skin is not allowed. I mean, when I came to the States, I actually had culture shock because when you come from Kuwait, you barely see anything. And then here, the summers, people are almost half naked. So it, it's kind of a culture shock. But um, Kuwait is, is like that, very restricted. But um, it's one of the more friendlier countries in the Middle East. Um, I, I would say it's on par with Dubai. So, you know, you could still dress what you want to dress. You don't have to be veiled, um, but you have to be careful with, with life there. Yeah. And what would, just to be I'm just curious, what would happen if you dressed inappropriately? Would, would you, you know, just to sort of there be a kind of immediate social pressure, like, hey, you're, you're doing the wrong thing? Or Yeah, people would be staring at you. Like, if I mean, even if you see a lot of women who wear tight jeans or even a, a blouse that's above their hip, and then people will stare you down till you're embarrassed and you feel, oh, there's something wrong with what I'm wearing or with the way I've done my hair or, you know, things like that. And uh, I think there are a lot of social norms that are not um, explicitly said, but they are obvious. Like on a bus, there's a particular seat for women. There's a particular place where you stand. You can't just do what you want, you know. So there are a lot of um, segregations that happen in society that are not said, but they are understood. And was it similar in the Philippines or uh, more uh, <laughs> less restrictive? Ooh, it was just party, party time in the Philippines. <laughs> it's n nothing like nothing like that. But uh, Philippines is very, very Spanish, I guess, in its um, culture. So um, there's a lot of um, food every day. There's a lot of uh, merrymaking. I mean, every day is, is, is kind of a party. I remember even on the days that we had our duty in, in, in surgery rotations, uh, they would order an entire suckling pig. And that was for all the residents, nurses, doctors on duty, they would be eating that night. And I'm not kidding, by the time it was four o'clock in the morning, not one part of that pig remained. Everything was consumed. So 
life in the Philippines is, is fun. And how did you become interested in being a doctor? Was it something you were always interested in as a, as a child? Um, not really. I mean, I was keen on being an author as a child, and my parents were not so keen on that. They didn't think I would make any money. Uh, not that I am right now, but still. Um, so I was good at biology, and I ended up taking um, the sciences, and then I ended up doing medicine. And, you know, it was just one thing that led to another. And so I, I, you, you've got a, a religious podcast and you write on religious themes. Um, so I'm going to ask you straightforwardly, were, were you raised in a Christian family? Yeah, I was born and raised Catholic and uh, I've continued to do so. Um, I think over time, um, I've been more convicted as a Catholic. So when I was 18, I had my first experience like uh, uh, where God really called me to do something rather than just talk about my faith. And uh, over time, it's, you know, I've been through a lot of things. We've been through the wars. We've been through troubles, financial difficulties, my father's death. And I think the only one constant that has been there is God himself. I mean, I, I've, I would have been dead many times over had I not had my faith, you know. So it's kind of sustained me. And that's how um, 10 Reminders and the podcast and everything started from, from my faith. And I, I should say, I come from a Mennonite background myself. Okay. So, so I, I probably find Roman Catholicism as strange as your many of your Kuwaiti <laughs> friends may have. Um, but I remember I was I was when I was researching for this interview, I listened to a couple of the episodes of your podcast. Mm -hmm. And in one of them you talk about Marian apparitions. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess I just wanted to to straight up ask you, so is this is so you you believe you believe that Mary the mother of Jesus appears to people on earth? Yeah, I do. I mean, um, I, I feel that she strongly shows her presence where people are suffering and where the world is suffering or going through a very uh, a tragic time. I think the Catholic Church hasn't recognized a number of these apparitions yet. But, uh, you know, she appeared in Rwanda before the, the genocide happened to warn people and, and to do something about it. And they didn't. And then she's appeared in, in, in Latin America, and we see what's happening in Latin America right now. So I feel, yeah, I feel that she appears as, as a warning and, and you know, as, as a strength in times of trouble. So, yeah, yeah, I do believe that. And I'm sure, I'm sure you get this question, I mean, when, when it comes up, uh, but, uh, it, <clears throat> you know, what, what do you say to skeptics who would say that, like, who might even, you know, be, be Christian, but don't, don't believe that this kind of thing happens? Yeah, the thing is, I think there are two differences here. I think one of the things is people think that I'm Catholic because of dogma, you know, mm. and I am not a dogmatic Catholic. I mean, I I myself don't understand a lot of Aquinas and, and um, you know, uh, Liguri. I, I read that stuff and I, it still doesn't make sense to me. But the thing is, I'm, I don't believe because somebody has told me. I believe because of my own personal relationship with Christ. And believe me when I say this, the only person who stands with me when I'm down in the dumps is Christ himself, nobody else. So my faith doesn't come from dogma. And that's what I tell skeptics over and over. You cannot convict me otherwise because I've seen, touched, felt and heard Christ himself. So that's enough to convict me. Yeah, I got I got the sense. Thank you for sharing that. I got the sense from your podcast about how, how direct your experience of God God is uh, and maybe isn't isn't. That is not everybody sort of, I mean, a lot of people, people approach religion from various directions, some, Ways, some yeah. positive, yeah. some negative. I would, I would say definitely that, you know, um, I'm not a very religious person, but for me, it was always very much in the head. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never really been in the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always find it very interesting to hear from people who have such a different or have their, have their own. Everyone has their own experience. Of <laughs> Every view. Yeah. 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 Um, and so so you became a, you became a doctor. Uh, your parents were skeptical about your career as a writer. Um, I can <laughs> yeah. I can say uh, this comes up every once in a while on this podcast. But I you know I have a doctorate in English literature and uh, afterwards went yeah. into investment banking. So. <laughs> uh, there, there are different paths that one can take. Um, yeah, uh, starting starting with an interest in writing and 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 literature. When did you uh, write your first novel? So there was this competition that was being held. Uh, I think it, it was 2013. That was for some reason my lucky year. And um, this competition happened. They wanted South Asian romances, and um, I wrote one and I won in the competition. It was the first time I won anything in my life. So. I was kind of very happy, and then the story was published as a novella. And from there, every year, I started submitting, and I got a little more confident with, uh, you know, submitting because, okay, I won this. I, there's a chance I could win more. And that's how short stories happen. From the short stories, more novellas happen, and then the novels started happening. So that was the, the lucky break, yeah, or a blessing. I don't know, yeah. And what's I'm, I'm really curious, but what's your writing process like? Are you one of those people who like carves out time in the morning or is it just whenever you can find a moment? Well, I try to be a, a disciplined writer and I know a lot of people say, you know, that, uh, you shouldn't write, you should write quality and not quantity. Um, and, and I don't believe in that because anyway, all of our first drafts are crap anyway. So I do, I try to do 1000 words every day, uh, even if it doesn't make sense. But the thing is, before I go to bed, I think about what I'm going to write tomorrow, or I stop before uh, the 1000 words uh, is over, because I know, okay, this part can continue tomorrow. And so I have material to write for tomorrow. And so that's how I go about it 1000 words um, every day. And it's, it's not a lot every day, but it's still 30,000 words a month. Yeah, it's really, it's actually, it's interesting you bring up the question of, you know, I mean, you know, quantity and quality, and that's a very great line about all our first drafts suck. Um, uh, but it, it's, um, I know that you publish your, your books on Amazon, and yeah. I, I don't know about this as directly as, as you would, but I've read a fair amount about self-publishing on Amazon, and one of the things mm-hmm. that I think is very important for success on Amazon is consistently publishing and writing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's one of the changes I made last year. So earlier, I was uh, writing just one a year, and then waiting for, you know, an agent to pick it up waiting for, you know, something to happen. And then I realized that you need to have consistent writing, and you need to be doing it more often. And and I read, I, I don't know who it was, there was another author that I read who was doing, who did this podcast on marketing, and she was doing 12 books a year, that's one every month. And I don't have that pace and I don't have the time to do that. Uh, but I thought that was that was really someone who was committed to marketing the books. So I started doing more and I did like one every quarter. So this year I managed two uh, and I'm hoping to do two more by the end of the year. <clears throat> yeah, I, I believe that actually one of the... Um... I mean, this is an incredible pace to keep up, but one of the I know, one yeah. Of the, but one of the formulas for succeeding as a self-published author of genre fiction on Amazon mm-hmm. is to publish a hundred thousand words a month, one one novel every thirty days. 
And yeah. uh, it's crazy that there are people who can do that, but there are people who can do it. Um, and, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know how they, how they do it, <laughs> but, um, but, but it is, but it is, it's an interesting, you bring, you bring up agents and waiting to be discovered by, by them or by publishers and things like that. And it's, it's really interesting what's happened to self-publishing in the last 10 years or so. And the way that Amazon has really changed it, you can, you can make money, uh, as a self-published yeah. author now in a way that you couldn't before, but it does require, yeah setting up a what they call a platform in the business which I'm sure you <laughs> yes. know all about because you have one uh, and I, I wanted to ask you about that so one thing that I think often seems um, daunting to people when they're starting out in sort of you know their a career or a hobby or I suppose as, as a self-published author is just setting up a website uh, you've got mm-hmm. a, you've got a great one uh, and I was wondering if you could just share a little bit of information about how you set up your website and how you maintain it so the thing is, when I did the website, I was I didn't have any money. So I had to do it all by myself. I did it all wrong. And then I learned what I had to do right. So it took, uh, I think it took nearly three and a half years to get to where I am today. It's taken a very long time. So the first thing that I did was I went on WordPress.com. And I started what was a free website. And and let me say this. I mean, if you want to make money, you have to spend some money. So if you want to build a platform, go to WordPress.org, pay the money for, you know, um, your site, the security, all the stuff, the the certificates, um, and set it up, you know. And then... um, you can set up everything that you like, like do what you want to do, your brand colors, think about the fonts, think about what what pictures you're going to use consistently where people are going to see you everywhere. And I didn't know all this stuff. I didn't know that color was important. I didn't know pictures were important. You had to have an author portfolio. You need to have uh, pictures. Um, so all these things kind of tie into building a brand and uh, Nobody explains that you, what a brand is, but then gradually you understand what it is. And then setting up social media, getting all the things tied into that website, consistently blogging there, getting traffic to come there. So now, after three years, I have traffic. I mean, I didn't have traffic all these years with the website. So, you know, all these things slowly happen, but platform takes a long time. And how do you approach social media? Do you, um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of very political on Twitter. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily gain me a lot of friends. Friends, um, yeah. How, how do you approach that, that kind of thing? I mean, when it comes to, I mean, obviously, obviously you, you, you write about religion and you talk about religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you draw the line at politics? Well, there's not a lot of politics that I understand, first of all. <laughs> Because it always seems that the sides are changing and the people are changing and and nothing else seems to change. I mean, the policies stay the same. So the rest of uh, social media, um, I know a lot of authors do use it to direct sell. And they keep saying, you know, it's it's supposed to be a one is to three or a one is to eight approach. I don't know what it is right now. But I've stuck with using social media to let people know the books are coming. Uh, how the writing process is happening, the podcast is happening, um, what's right, what's wrong in my life, that's it. Um, I'm not really trying to do more, yeah, because it, it just ends up being a numbers game. You're constantly thinking, you know, followers, followers, followers. So uh, one question I have is, uh, is interacting with your readers directly on social media or by email something that you do? Well, yeah, um, I have people who write in after they've reviewed or read a book. Like uh, 
recently I wrote painting quite well last year and a lot of people um women especially wrote back to me and said well you know we have it really good here out in the west in the united states or in britain especially they were kind of amazed that life in the middle east is so hard for women so with those people i definitely write back and you know talk to them and interact with them there are people sometimes on facebook sometimes people leave comments on the website uh, and they don't want it to be made public which is why there are not not many comments on my website but these interactions that happen and i feel like this builds um a relationship with the reader rather than you know just bombarding them with newsletters and 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 social media stuff so it helps yeah I hope this isn't an, an overly sensitive issue, but one thing that uh, a lot of people in who sort of are building public profiles, but in particular women, one experience they can have is being getting a lot of negativity directed at them, basically on social media. Um, mm-hmm. I've that I've this has come up on with some of the people I've interviewed on the podcast before. It, is is online abuse something that you've had to deal with? Well, I've not really had uh, too much of it because I'm not spending a lot of time. My goal every day is like 15 minutes on social media, get in, get out, that's it. Mm. Um I don't spend a lot of time um arguing or responding or, you know, I don't have that, but I did have an experience where uh, as soon as my uh, as soon as Painting Queen Violet came out, um and I had sent out all these blurbs and teasers about the book and, you know, the the, the trailer is kind of sad. Um so Twitter suspended my account. And huh. after that, yeah, and after that um one thing I learned from from that experience was that you don't build your followers on social media, you build them on your website. Because at any point of time Facebook, Twitter and all these organizations can suddenly shut you down and then you you're left with nothing. So you build your readership your platform on your platform and not on social media. So after one month Twitter sent me a message saying that they reinstated me and why wasn't I posting more stuff on Twitter? So <laughs> so after that I've become wary, you know, I've I've become cautious like uh, there's no need of building a profile elsewhere, I'll just do it on my website. That's it. It's very yeah, thank you very much for sharing that that I think very good advice. Uh you just reminded me of a story I heard recently uh from my brother's parents-in-law basically who who have a I believe it's a nephew who was um doing quite well self-publishing on Amazon mm-hmm. and, and one day Amazon just yanked him. Ooh. Yeah, they just shut everything off um because he he would have I think I think he was doing I think like erotic werewolf fiction or something like Okay, okay. Something <laughs> something kind of risky. Um and okay. uh and i i guess he just he fell a foul of some algorithm in amazon mm. and and he he was making like $100,000 a year uh wow. and, and all of a sudden it was just gone and so he's been working you know hard to sort of you know he had to get new bank accounts and new pen mm. name and stuff like that but your i think i think your advice about um having your own platform that you're in control of uh, yeah. as the center yeah. of your kind of web uh is is very good advice because you can see a lot of the work one can you if you're if you're dependent on other platforms they they can as you say you happen with you on Twitter they can just you know shut you out at any moment yeah and and on your website um you control all the information i mean no one can take down your comments no one can take down your blog because you own everything you've paid for all of it 
Mm-hmm. So that's why I keep saying pay for, um, you know, the the hosting, pay for, because even if you're if you're uh, not hosting the material yourself, the content does not belong to you. But if you're hosting yourself, it means everything, every image, every sentence, everything you write belongs to you. You can say what you want, write what you want, uh, post whatever pictures you want, and no one can take you down. And do you uh, still run your website entirely on your own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one. It's something that I will not hand over to anyone else because I'm changing uh, things every month. Like I have to change the podcast. Uh, I have to change images. I have to change details of my portfolio. So uh, if you hand over control to somebody else, you'll be paying them every month, or uh, you know you have to constantly bother somebody. Do this, do that. There's a deadline. But if you're doing it yourself, you can wake up in the middle of the night and do it yourself. It's it's no big deal yeah and uh again getting into the the practicalities of things because it can often seem so daunting from the outside but how did you go about setting up a podcast on your own well um trial and error <laughs> so the the podcast happened uh because uh, i was going through a very hard time after my father's death and then um you know i felt inspired to do it you know do the podcast and I said you know god I'm only going to do this if you're going to send people to feature on the podcast because I didn't know anything about podcasting and so I bought um I got uh, this I started with Skype Audacity and um, a pair of headphones and and I started recording just one every month and uh, gradually over time you know it's been a year and a half two years now we're about 54 episodes and uh, gradually it picked up and and I learned like through mistakes. Um, there, there were some episodes where I forgot to even turn on the recording, and <laughs> so you know it happens, and then you learn gradually. Yeah, that's uh, every podcaster's nightmare. <laughs> uh, every every time when I sort of you know click the hang up button, and we're we're recording this in Skype for anyone listening, and uh, every time I click the hang up button, I just have a moment of panic I know, I know. is it really is the recording is, really it, be there? is it all there yeah yeah and um i know that i i've found that actually um and i think my experience is similar to yours you know a bit trial and error but like um people are actually relatively people take to the podcast format really naturally usually i mean if they've if they've if they've asked to be on or if they've accepted an invitation they've probably already thought mm-hmm. about it and in my experience um when someone is overly detailed or cautious in the way they run their podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, they're like, you need to make sure that you're using this protocol and you record it on your <laughs> end and I'll record it on my end. I found, and this is this is just totally anecdotal and kind of off script, but I find that they tend to be, be- not very good interviewers. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's, there's something about that kind of, let's uh, call it tight mindset yeah. that <clears throat> isn't conducive to a flowing conversation. Yeah. Uh, and so just this is just all the way around of saying, like, if you're thinking of starting your own podcast, try and be, you will probably fail at being easygoing, uh, like we all do, <laughs> but, but you should paradoxically try, uh, because the best thing for having a good conversation is just accepting that, you know what, there's going to be a dog in the background. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, or a plane. Or, or, or a plane or a police siren and... You know, things, things yes. are going to go wrong. And it's actually, it, it took me longer than it should have, but I've realized that actually one of the charms of a good podcast is actually a little bit of the the randomness. Yeah. 
the naturalness of the natural sounds that happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, on, on that note, so uh, this is not a subject area that comes naturally to me, but you've written a nonfiction book called Ten Reminders for the Single Christian Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was thinking about it a little bit before, well, while I was preparing for this interview. And so I guess there's something, and I hate, I hate to be presumptuous about it, but there's something about, gen- generally speaking, I think people would consider that, you know, part of being a, a Christian is wanting to get married, mm-hmm. unless, unless you're in the, in the priesthood or, or, or something like that. Um, yeah. And and so the position of a single Christian woman is kind of problematic in in itself. Is that right? Well, to a great extent, it is. Um, I think even right now, if uh, I'll give you an example of my own parish, um, whichever parish I've been to, and I've been to a number of churches all over, they'll have ministries for the youth. They'll have ministries for um, um, couples. They will have it for kids. They will have it for senior citizens. And yet, um, single people, working single people, uh, don't have much. Uh, working single men are often targeted for uh, the religious life or priesthood. And that leaves the single Christian woman doing nothing. You know, There's nothing to keep them um, occupied in church ministry. We're always told, you know, go here, join um, communion, do gospel, do choir, but there's nothing to support uh, single Christian women in their in their journey, and it can be hard. It's it's hard enough as a woman, and it's hard as a, a, a for us as Catholic women. It's even more harder. So that's why when I wrote the book, it was uh, something that I personally have been through. I I'm going through. So <clears throat> the reminders are a way of keeping you motivated, of staying true to your faith. And staying positive because God has a better plan than most of us can imagine. And uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing, what are one or two of the uh, the ten reminders in your book? So um, one of the reminders is, um, you know, being uh, Proverbs uh, thirty one. I don't know if you know, but there's this thing about Psalm um, thirty one and 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 Proverbs thirty one, and a lot of um, People say, you know, you've got to be uh, this woman of, you know, this, this this Proverbs woman who is hardworking and and uh, strong and kind and gentle and blah, 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 blah. But most of the time we end up being Psalm 31 women, which, which is the woman who says, oh, Lord, help me. I'm miserable, you know, because that's how we are. We're just crying about the state that we're in, that, Lord, when are you going to bless me? When are you going to give me my husband or my career or my job or my vocation, whatever vocation that may be. But instead, we need to focus on ourselves on really being that Proverbs 31 woman, being kind, uh, learning how to be independent, learning how to manage money, learning how to maintain a household, um, learning to deal with our present relationships, whether that's our family, our parents. Um, and so that's one of the reminders. Uh, another one is prayer. Um, you know, you have to be able to have a relationship with Christ first before you can have a relationship with your spouse or your superior, whoever it's going to be in your vocation. So those are a couple of reminders. Um, and most of them, 10 of them are, are quite simple. They're all biblical uh, verses that have been kind of taken and expanded so that women can stay uh, positive while they're single and and, and and not think of it as a season of... Um, you know, just waiting, but a season of growing. And is there 
I mean, I'm I mean, I know you, you you've, you've mentioned already that there's a lot of diversity, you know, amongst between parishes uh, and presumably between you know, <clears throat> priests and, and things like that. But mm -hmm. are women in the Roman Catholic Church, do they come under do, do you come under pressure to get married if you're not? I don't think so. I, I think times have changed now. And um, I think the current problem in the Catholic Church is that nobody cares. Fellowship is one of our biggest problems. So what I feel right now is that no one's really bothered. Okay, there are single women, there are people uh, who are looking for spouses, or there are people who are looking for a vocation. It's all dumped on, on the priests. And they are supposed to, you know, do all this stuff and, and, and organize and, and do events or whatever. But I think the pressure right now is is getting people to even come to church. It's it's no longer that, uh, okay, how do we help these people? How do we help the women? Or I don't even think that's, that there's any pressure anymore because hardly anybody's there at church. So there, these are very different times right now for the Catholic Church. And uh, this is a problem that is really far down the list. So there are more pressing issues in the Catholic Church right now. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you just reminded me of a, a sort of, I guess, funny, but a, a sort of apposite experience. I had a few Christmases ago. So I was visiting my brother in a small town in uh, the province of Ontario in Canada. And, mm -hmm. and his... Uh, girlfriend at the time was Catholic. And so it was Christmas Eve and we went to Christmas Eve mass. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of my, my brother's partner's friends was there. And so there we were, I was this, you know, Mennonite guy and there was this Jewish guy and we walked into this Catholic <laughs> church on Christmas Eve. And um, there was an organizer there. I remember a woman, a very bitter woman uh, <laughs> who uh, was, was tasked with sort of, you know, organizing the collection and she couldn't find anybody to do it. So she saw mm -hmm. me and this other guy and she's like, can you do the collection? <laughs> we were like, sure, if you want Mennonites and Jews doing Catholic collection, this we're happy. That's why we're here, you know. But so I had to learn like, holding the basket on the end of the stick and stuff like that. But anyway, I remember, I remember how visibly and openly frustrated this mm -hmm. woman was that there was no one around who knew enough, mm -hmm. you know, to actually even do collection. And I yeah. thought at the same time it was sort of like I was very sympathetic, but at the same time, like she kind of pissed me off. <laughs> because she there there I was volunteering to do something and she was she was just so unhappy uh, <laughs> that she couldn't be kind of gracious on Christmas Eve but I guess anyway I'm just sharing that story because it was an experience I had where you know there was a, there was actually even like a proper bishop at this ceremony okay. uh, and even that wasn't enough to attract a lot mm. of people and and I guess you know uh, she must have she she could have used you guys because I'm sure. Uh, to have two good-looking <laughs> young men at the church, it would have been amazing. And she should have used you guys and said, well, go ahead. You would have had a bigger collection, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, it was, but it was, I mean, it was, in, anyway, I mean, I know that, that, um, a lot of a lot of churches everywhere are having are having trouble attracting people. Actually, just on that, uh, since we're talking about this, uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that? Let, let, let's let's be specific to the Roman Catholic Church. Why are the why are the pews emptying? Well, I'll be honest. Catholicism is hard. It's not everyone's cup of tea, and it's a discipline. And I think a lot of people today want Catholicism to be watered down. You know, and that's not going to happen because the church is not going to change her stance on, on what has been 2000 years ago. And it will still be there another 2000 years later. So what 
people are expecting is a watered-down version of Catholicism, and that's not going to happen. This, I'm telling you as a cradle Catholic, it is hard. It is a struggle every day to say, yes, God, I do your will and not mine. It is difficult to, you know, to have to embody the gifts of the spirit. I know I fail every day, which is why I try as much as possible to go to confession, to, you know, make the Eucharist at least four times a week, because I know how hard it can be. And so the pews are empty because people feel, well, that's one thing. It's it's hard to be Catholic. Secondly, I think a lot of materialism has, has kind of taken away our need for God. We place ourselves at the center of our lives. And this is one thing. It's now become, um, you know, the ego drama. I direct my movie. I star in my movie and I produce my movie. When it should have been theodrama, where God directs this movie God makes, uh, you know, produces this movie and God makes me the star. So it's it's different because of those reasons. Uh, our, our dependence on God has, has decreased. At least that's what I think. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that, that. I'm just thinking it's um, a life. There's so much. Hmm, I'm not sure exactly how to put this. It seems it strikes me that when I see the types of Christian churches that are that appear to be thriving in our current environment there actually is a lot of there seems to be an emphasis on pleasure mm-hmm. yeah and e- even sometimes i mean actually becoming wealthy mm, yeah and and it seems like i i just bring that up because you know the context of you know with, with say what conventional roman catholicism is very difficult yeah uh whereas there are other types of con- conventional christianity that are not about difficulty at all yeah. Uh, even though if you pressed someone on it, they would probably claim that it was. But, you know, a lot of, I, I guess, you know, I mean, coming from a Mennonite background myself, you know, it religion is not fun and games. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's not about wealth. And mm-hmm. it's it's not about six personal success. Yeah. Uh, all those things are important parts of life. Uh, mm. But they're, as they might say, you know, orthogonal mm. in some senses to the core of what it's supposed to be yeah which makes the challenge inherently difficult as i'm sure (laughs) every priest listening to this podcast would know um uh so i guess we've gone we've gone into some sort of deep waters there uh but uh, on a lighter note um one question i wanted to ask you was if you were starting out as a writer now what's one thing that you now know that you wish you'd known when you were starting out brand and platform. I think I would have built that before I started writing the books. I mean, um, and, and you know, this is something that you tell authors to do and they are not going to understand it. I mean, I have a group of friends now who who are, are just starting writing their books. We met at, at a conference and I keep telling them, you know, start the website, build a brand, build a platform. And, you know, it's not happening. And, uh, they don't seem to get it because they, they're not there yet marketing the book. So they don't understand. But I keep saying this, and, and I, I know it's probably going to be on deaf ears, but build a platform before you can put the book out in the market. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that. I mean, that's, you know, one of the one of the sort of things that people find hardest to do, oddly enough, is 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 promote the, yeah. the work that they put so much love and care into. Um, yeah. 
and 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 really just understanding as an as a self-published author that you know there's going to be well like and like any published author that a portion of your time is going to be spent telling people about what you've done and mm. why you think it's good uh, yeah. and and why they should why they should read it <laughs> why they should buy your book why they should buy exactly it. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. And on actually on that note, so uh, this is kind of in the weeds question, but how do you go about pricing your books? Well, it depends on um, the number of pages, the amount of uh, research and the market. So it uh, if, if it's, for example, uh, a Christian book, I probably would not really uh, price it too high uh, because my goal is that as many number of people can read it, should read it. So that's how I position the book. But if I'm doing romance or I'm doing women's fiction, then um, it depends on what the subject is. Like, for example, um, I know Painting Quay Violet, um, Solstice Publishing, they priced the the print book at 13 bucks. And, and I find that expensive myself when I, um, you know, I have to buy copies to give my uh, relatives and friends or when I'm sending it out to reviewers. I mean, I, I find it like 13 bucks. It, it's a lot. But um, that's what they figured uh, anyone who's interested in Middle Eastern fiction would kind of be. When I do romance, I kind of price it in between. Like um, I do it in such a way that somebody who's who's reading for um, for pleasure can can you know make it with 3.99 or uh, something under five um, I also find that if you price higher like do a higher ticket book you can definitely do sales more often like you can do every quarter a, a 99 sale or uh, do a, a deal a featured deal on Amazon or, or a Goodreads or something like that but if you price it too low then you cannot do um, these these ad sales too often. Like they don't even make sense. Like people won't buy. So that's what I feel when it comes to pricing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting um, from from our perspective. I mean, you know, we welcome all types of books on LeanPub, but typically um, we have uh, you know programming and technical books, which tend to be sort of naturally priced quite a bit, mm-hmm. quite a bit higher than. Um, most fiction, you know, one of the one of the sort of somewhat self-congratulatory reasons that you know our authors use to justify their higher prices is, you know, you can actually, if you're you're going to learn something, so you can actually bill yourself out at a higher rate or mm-hmm. get a promotion or something like that. But but yeah, one of the, I mean, everybody, I, I, you know, who's in the in the book publishing world for a little while realizes that sales are very important. Uh, yeah, and and that and that you know that it, you actually do kind of have to keep that in mind when you're setting a kind of baseline price for your book that you're going to actually, yeah. you're going to want to sell it at a discount at some point. Um, and actually, uh, how do you find, if, if you don't mind sharing, what proportion of your books sell in paperback versus Kindle? Oh, I think it's been all Kindle. Um, I've not had a lot of success with um, print. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why. And I've, I've analyzed everything like in fact, I'm kind of amazed because sometimes the books that have good covers don't tend to sell as well. Like we did um, last month uh, in July, I had a sale um, on one of the prettiest covers. So Wish Upon a Bollywood Star was, uh, was I think, 99 cents. And it's one of the most beautiful covers of all my books. And we sold only two books, I think. <laughs> and it oh was my. horrible. Yeah, it was, it was horrible. But we did... Um, painting Quay Violet the month before 
and I did it only on Amazon and we had a hundred copies that sold. We went to the Amazon bestseller list and that's because um, it's Middle Eastern fiction. So there's not a lot of, um, you know, you don't have to sell that many to get to the top. So I don't know what the difference is because Painting Quite Violet has a very simple, basic cover. Whereas the, pr- the book with a pretty cover didn't really sell. So I'm not sure how you analyze uh, the blurbs are, are, are both good. Um, so I don't know what the conversion is because we did only Amazon and we did much better uh, when we did all, you know, across Kobo, Smashwords, everything. We didn't do well. So I don't know how to analyze it, um, but print is not really working for me. It's ebooks all the way. And which is why uh, I, I now go direct ebooks. And then if I feel like maybe this has some potential, I'll do print. But otherwise, I'm not really keen on, on doing as much print for romance and women's fiction. Uh, you mentioned earlier on that you have to spend money to make money. And I, one thing I noticed mm-hmm. was that you do have very good covers for your books. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've just looking at them right now, I guess I would say I prefer painting Kuwait violet to wish upon a book <laughs> uh, myself. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, how do you get your covers? So um, there are two particular people that I work with for my own self-published um, covers and then uh, when you're with publishing houses, uh, it tends to be whoever they pick for you. But what I've learned is that you need to have uh, your vision ready before you can like explain to the the, the person, the, the cover designer. Because a lot of times uh, the concept they have in mind and your book is completely different because they've not read your book. They just read what is called the art sheet and then they create a cover from the art sheet. So usually what I do is I send uh, like pictures. Uh, in fact, Painting Quay Violet, I, I had the entire picture ready. And I said, you know, this is the picture I want. And and that's how it ended up being on the cover. Whereas with the other covers, it's like, uh, do we add elements? Do we do design, font? And, you know, so things get really uh, muddy once you do all those things. So two people that I work with, um, one's an Austrian girl, um, that I met on Fiverr. She's really good. And uh, the other is from Bahrain. She's um, she's somebody I worked with on uh, Wish Upon a Bollywood Star. And now for, in other words, my book coming out in November, December, she kind of uh, worked with uh, worked with me on that. So these are my tri- true and tested um, cover designers, and I'm pretty much going to work with them over and over again. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that. And what's... Uh... I guess my last question would be, you, you mentioned you write every day. Uh, what were you writing about today and what's your next, uh, what's your next book about? So basically I have a, a romance that I have to finish <laughs> and it's been a struggle because uh, I am in no mood of writing romance right now. So it's kind of hard to think about, um, think about how to progress the story. So um, I'm writing, in other words, I'm editing, in other words, and I'm writing... Um, for the third book of um, my sports series with Touchpoint Press, I need to give them the third book, and I'm behind on deadline. So, so that's what I'm doing. I'm editing one, and I'm writing the other. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Pamela, for taking the time to be on the podcast today, and for sharing all of your all of your thoughts, and be, for being so game to cover such wide ground. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I really enjoy all these conversations, and it's just so one of the great things about inter- having a podcast where you get to interview authors is they're all thoughtful people, uh, and and they like to talk. 
Thank you, Len, for inviting me, and thank you for tolerating me for one hour. It's okay. <laughs> it was really nice to talk to you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you heard it. And if you would like to be a Lean Pub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. <laughs>